0: Everyone, welcome back to here. And Apologetics is always brought to you by you with your support on Patreon.com. Today, I'm joined by Tyler Vela. He runs the Free Thinking uh, Ministries podcast. So much great stuff over there. But Tyler, thank you for joining me. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing very well. Thank you so much, uh, so much for having me.
0: Awesome. Yeah. And I'm so excited to talk to you about, um, a fun argument called the transcendental argument for God. Uh, we talk about like abstract objects and things like that. Talk a little bit about like your debate with Matt Dillahunty, um, all kinds of fun stuff there. But before we get into that, can you talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do?
1: Yeah. So, uh, I, uh, host the, the Freed Thinker, uh, podcast, blog, YouTube channel. You just, I used to call it the Freed Thinker podcast, but now that there's a YouTube channel and uh, blog and all there's the Freed Thinker, I guess. Uh, it's really uh, dedicated and devoted to uh, Christian philosophy and apologetics, largely towards uh, philosophical naturalism, mm-hmm. um, kind of my background coming out um, of uh, a secular household and growing up not religious. At all, um, growing up uh, an atheist and, and not, you know, coming to know the Lord until I was 20 years old, out of a, a philosophy class, actually. Um, so it's kind of, you know, geared towards addressing the things that I would have been reading and thinking about when when I was an atheist, when I was, you know, 18, 19, and and starting out in uh, in, in philosophy courses at uh, at college. So um, it's really geared towards that. So I don't do a lot of apologetics with like, uh, you know, the cults or Jehovah's Witnesses or Hinduism or anything. It's just not my my wheelhouse um but uh, uh geared geared towards really that that kind of apologetics with the new atheism which a lot of people are about as well um but i also come from a, a theologically reformed background um so uh, i do deal a lot with uh with reform theology um with what's called calvinism and the doctrines of grace compatibilism and determinism and, and topics like that um, and some of those interactions and how that affects apologetics when dealing with things like the problem of evil and the hiddenness of God and free will theodicies. And so there are some interactions with Molinism and why I think that that's, that's wrong. I know you have some, uh, you have, uh, I think Kirk McGregor coming on uh, next week or two weeks, something like that, talking about, uh, Molinism. So, you know, inter- how, how we view those issues differently. Um, so I talk about, uh, some of that, uh, as well. And then yeah, go ahead. No, 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 keep going. I was just saying, and then from that, um, I've uh, I've been invited to do a lot of uh, a lot of debates, either online or in person, um, which I think is one of the reasons why you brought me here from my debate with uh, with Matt Dillahunty on um, the Great Debate.
0: Yeah, with the epic Mac still, D- D- honey, I guess you could say. Um, and yeah, I remember listening to the debate and then I've just listened to your podcast. And I'm like, Tyler's a pretty smart guy It'd be fun to talk with him about a really interesting argument um, for God's existence. Because I think, you know, we can get so caught up in like the cosmological or the fine tuning your moral realism. But then we have like this transcendental argument, which is super, super interesting, because it gets at, to like the fundamental nature of reality, like the laws of logic and such. Could you talk about like, what is the transcendental
1: argument uh, for God's existence? Yeah, so the transcendent argument typically comes out of a certain uh, school of apologetics known as presuppositionalism, mm-hmm. um, and uh, instantly <laughs> I am going to uh, probably alienate most of your audience um, <laughs> because I'm presuppositionalist, which will alienate some, but I'm also not presuppositionalist enough for, <laughs> for a lot of people either. <laughs> so uh so there are some kind of in my own in my own house that are going to be mm-hmm. uh, not happy with some of the things that i that i say here but um so i uh i come from a certain kind of apologetics known as presuppositionalism um which uh the the core of is that um w- without god we 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 wouldn't be able to reason anyways and so the mere fact that we're able to uh, engage in reasoning with the unbeliever um it is itself evidence uh for that god exists in the first place Um, that, that caches itself out in a hundred different ways, uh, presuppositional kind of philosophy should be distinguished from presuppositional methodology. So that's kind of where I differ from a lot of presuppositionalists because while I'm presuppositional philosophically, I have major problems with kind of the methodology, methodology that a lot of them Mm. will use. Um, so, so that's where it comes in, but the transcendental argument um, is really somewhat of a bad name for it. I don't mm-hmm. actually like the name, the transcendental argument, because it makes it sound like it's the only transcendental argument. Mm. Um, when really something like William Lane Craig's moral argument is also a transcendental argument. Um, his argument from, uh, from intentionality is a transcendental argument. Um, so something that is transcendental um, is, is, is following kind of in the footsteps of Kant and asking the question, what is a necessary precondition for what you're talking about? So um, for example, William Lane Craig's moral argument, it's a transcendental argument because it's asking what is the transcendental fact that has to be true in order for objective moral values and duties to be true, right? So he's going to say God is that transcendental necessity. He's going to say without God, if God did not exist, then it follows that objective moral values and duties don't exist. He runs it as, a, as, a, as an inverse argument, as a modus tollens. Mm-hmm. The transcendental argument in presuppositional circles that I've somewhat formulated uh, along the similar lines to make it clear um, is similar. It's that if God did not exist, then, and I started kind of a long time ago with then the laws of logic wouldn't exist, which I think is true but I've adapted it over the years to to make it, I think, a little bit more robust to um, that, therefore, transcendental facts of reality as a whole, as a whole category, wouldn't exist. Mm -hmm. Um, Premise two is transcendental facts of reality do exist, therefore God exists. Mm -hmm. The reason, and I'm sure we'll talk about that argument quite a bit, but the the thing that makes it um, an interesting argument and somewhat unusual and gets, and, and I'm sure we'll talk about circularity and things like that, um, is that William Lane Craig's argument, um, it's a transcendental argument, but it's not an argument that has implications kind of reflexively for itself, mm. um, right? So, so uh, the, the fact that uh, God is the transcendental necessity for objective moral values and duties doesn't kind of reflect on your ability to understand the argument itself. The fact that moral values duties do exist doesn't reflect on the argument itself, But if you think about an argument for transcendental facts of reality, or if we, you know, pare it down to laws of logic, Mm -hmm. well, you have to use that very thing to even understand and reason about the argument itself. So it has these little kind of reflexive, uh, this kind of reflexivity toward, towards the argument itself. So that, so that if God exists, if it's true that, that if God did not exist, then laws of logic or transcendental facts of value uh, of transcendental facts didn't exist. Um, then it means we shouldn't be able to reason about this argument in the first place, Mm. right? But once we establish that that's the case and that transcendental facts do exist, then the very fact that we can even reason with the unbeliever, with the atheist about transcendental facts of reality and God just is itself evidence for the truth of the argument. So um, a lot of people will confuse that with kind of logical circularity. The, The argument, the syllogism is not, a circular syllogism, right? It doesn't, it doesn't commit a question begging fallacy. The, mm-hmm. No no, no premise is buried in the conclusion, but it has these kind of reflexive applications because our epistemology about these issues is somewhat uh, circular when you're going towards ultimate ends. I know I've said a lot, and I know you probably have questions from there. That's probably a good stopping point.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a, a great point to kind of like introduce the argument. So thank you for doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think a lot of people would affirm like the idea that there would be transcendental facts like it does seem like there's things where it's like the laws of logic or mathematics where like, it seems like they really do exist. Um, and it kind of be getting into that conditional premise where I would think there'd be more debate at least. But just to clarify, what do you when you're affirming like transcendental facts? Are you talking about like just the laws of logic or do you also think there's things like mathematics or moral realism? Like what are you talking about with regards to this argument?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, uh, it's, it's why, it's why the, the, the title of this episode is probably a little misleading because it's not actually abstract objects. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, so a transcendental fact, when you bring it up, people really confuse it with a, tr- uh, with a transcendent fact or something like that, right? So the instant a lot of kind of new atheists or online atheists hear that, they think you mean transcendent, like how we talk about God being transcendent or out there. Um, Mm. when really a transcendental is something that is a necessary precondition for something, Mm. right? So when we talk about a transcendental fact in this type of argument, we're talking about uh, transcendental facts that are preconditions for rationality, preconditions for us to be able to reason about things. Um, And there are lots of them, right? So laws of logic is one, right? I mean, I, I don't know what it means to say we could reason about something without the laws of logic this will come up Mm. later because some of the ways atheists try to get out of this argument is to say Mm. you know well there's no such thing as transcendental facts and i say okay well can can you reason without the laws of logic and they try to you Mm. know kind of maneuver about that in different ways right other transcendental facts i think are something like um that you know it has to be the case that something exists not that nothing exists um, it has to be the case that there are rational minds. It has to be the case um, that we live in an in, in orderly and consistent or, or, or regular cosmos, right? If we didn't, if we didn't live in a, a kind of a law-abiding cosmos, we couldn't do rationality, right? So, so mm-hmm. if, it, if it was the case... Um, that sometimes water boiled at whatever temperature, it bo- or uh, let's say, I don't know what temperature it boils at, freezes at, at, at 32 did degrees You hundred Celsius,
0: then that's really, a really easy hundred
1: Celsius, about. zero Celsius is when it freezes, whatever, whatever it was. If it did that sometimes, but not other times, and sometimes it turned into a frog, and sometimes, you know, it, whatever, we couldn't do, you couldn't make inferences. You couldn't be rational in, in a universe that didn't have any type of consistency. Now, that consistency maybe could be different. Maybe there'd be different laws in another cosmos, but there has to be some type of regularity and and, and law-like consistency. Otherwise you just couldn't do rationality. Um, Another one would be something like, and I think is important um, is what we talk in philosophy called the one and the many, right? There has to be this weird paradox. And I understand trying to talk about what the one and the many is, is weird. But there, whatever we mean by it, there has to be this weird paradox where um, there's kind of a unity and diversity that exists at the same time. There has to be trees, but there has to be something that we mean by kind of a tree that they all kind of fall into. Otherwise, we would, you know, at every tree, you know, we should call one tree Bill and we should call one tree Susan because they have nothing in common. Um, well, you can't, you can't, you know, you can't reason that way of everything doesn't have these kind of uh, this kind of unity underneath it. But mm. if everything is one, you can't really reason because then everything is one. You have to have diversity as well. So there's all these transcendental facts of reality that have to exist in order for us to be able to reason.
0: Mm. Right, and this is great. And I, I'd love to get into one of the objections I sent you now because sure. I think a lot of people would agree, you know, like we have these things, um, maybe they wouldn't call them like transcendental facts, but we do have things where like the law, of logic where like, you know, like excluded middle or identity, which help us like do like basic like things in scientific inquiry. But one of the, I think what a lot of people wonder is like, why, why pose God into, um, this, like, why couldn't the laws of logic just like exist because they have to. Um, so I right. kind of leave it just to start off with that. So how would you kind of respond to that kind of argument? They could just be necessary and they're not dependent on
1: God. Right. Right here. I think because I formed the argument, uh, as a very similar modus tollens, um, to something like what William and Craig has done for a moral argument or for um, a fine tuning argument, right, where he goes through and he says, "Well, fine tuning is either by necessity chance or design." Right, you have you have kind of categorically those those issues or those those categories of explanation. Um, and so while we don't we're not going for this kind of Cartesian certainty that it has to be design. If kind of the cards line up that it's more plausible that it's designed, and we have we have good reason to think that it's designed in all analogous cases, and we have good reason to think that it's not these other categories, then that's sufficient to justify or to warrant our belief in the one category. And I think we can do the same thing here with this, right? So this is where I'm going to break from a lot of presuppositional methodology, because they're going to say, you're doing too much classical apologetics now, <laughs> Uh, mm-hmm. Right. And arguing and, and thinking that you can reason with the unbeliever. And I'm just going to say, well, I mean, we're all we're all created Imago day. I can, I can reason with the unbeliever because we're all created in the image of God to reason. And, that, and that's fine. And I can point that out. Um, but I, I think one of the things that we can say is, OK, well, I mean, in order for in order for something to to ground these transcendental facts of reality, what are some of the cat, what are, what are some of the categories? What are some of the options? Right. And so, um, uh, you know, we can start from kind of the the worst and work our way up one, you know, one of them is that it's just, it's just kind of the ultimate form of bootstrapping, right. You just, for, mm-hmm. you know, in order for the natural world to be consistent, then it just already has to be consistent. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Kind of, kind of this kind of th- this, this question begging, um, necessity. It's just, just that in order for a universe to exist, that's just the type of thing that a universe would be. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, My first response is, I I mean, I I see no reason to think that that's the case. Um, But the second response is just, well, all that you've said is that in order for a universe uh, to exist, it just already has to be law abiding to the laws of logic. Mm -hmm. Well, that that can't be an explanation to explain the laws of logic, right? Because all you're saying is that in order for a universe to exist, it has to be logical. And I'm going to say, well, great, that's the... That's what we're trying to explain, right? You say, so you can't kind of have this circular kind of bootstrapping appeal um, to, 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 to ground it. Right. Again, I'm going to go back to the moral argument as an analogy because to help people understand, because I think people understand that argument a lot better. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, it's like when you talk to, Uh, You know, like my friend Ben Watkins uh, or or some others, where they're trying to get out of the moral argument, and they're just going to say, "Oh, well, I don't need to ground morality. It's just it's just irreducibly normative. It just is the case Mm -hmm. that 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 you know we have these moral relationships to facts in the world." And my response to that is, I mean, great. I'm glad we agree that we have these moral responsibilities, but you can't meet your you can't meet your burden, uh, or you can't provide a defeater of the argument that just is to say. Well, let's just suppose that that just is a brute fact about reality and move on, mm-hmm. right? But that, that, that's just not a good defeater for the argument. That doesn't actually give any warrant in the other direction, um, and, and you're just kind of engaging in special pleading at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have very similar uh, in, in kind of that bootstrapping version uh, for for transcendental facts or laws of logic. Mm-hmm. Um, the most common that we get isn't the most sophisticated. So the most common uh, response that we get is something that like Matt Dillahunty uh, gave to me in the debate, uh, what Tom Jump will try to do, what you know some of these others will do. And that's that, the, well, the laws of logic, they're just descriptive. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're just these human conventions that we came up with to describe reality. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, there's a couple of problems with that. The first one is that if they are... Um, if they want to make that move and, and, and they want to pull that to, well, you know, we know about the laws of logic because they are these human conventions that we use to describe reality. My, my first thing I'm going to say is, well, they've, they've made an, you know, an ontology epistemology error, right? So we're not asking the question, how do we know that the law, that the universe is law abiding, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe it's the case, that we came up with this the, these terms and these, these concepts about laws of logic. But that doesn't tell us why the universe itself is, ontolo- as, a, as a fact of ontology, law-abiding. Mm. Why, why it just is the case that contradictions cannot be true, right? Mm. The fact that contradictions can't be true cannot be grounded in the human convention. Right, because otherwise it would be the case that that laws of logic or that 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 contradictions could have been true before humans came up with the convention, which is mm-hmm. obviously false. Um, so, so you run into this, you kind of run aground of this problem of uh, of an ontology epistemology uh, a, a category error. Does that kind of make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm tracking with you, and I I think that one kind of objection i could think they could come up with um through this is the idea that um maybe with like moral realism it'd be harder to say that uh, as an atheist that there's just kind of this, like this brute fact that there is this like moral realism but maybe with something like the laws of logic it may be a little bit easier for them to talk about like you know we a lot of times there's the omnipotence paradox which can be thrown at a theist like um can god create a married bachelor and i think you know right. as the theist we'd answer no because that's a contradiction right. um and I mean. the atheists, <laughs> yeah and i couldn't Atheists kind of say the same things where it seems like even if God did not exist, couldn't we just have like these laws of logic? Cause it would seem like even if God does not exist, there still couldn't be any like married bachelors or something along those lines. So how would you respond to like that kind of objection?
1: Right. So that, that would be the one where I'm going to go back and say, okay, well now you're just going back to the bootstrapping example the, uh, of, of grounding, right? You're just saying, well, it just has to be the way the world is because otherwise the world wouldn't be the way the world is. Um, which just, again, not only answers the question of why the world is the way it is now some atheists might say well we don't care about the why question i mean, I mean I, I, you know let's take that with a grain of salt but the, but you can't use that as as a defeater for the argument because all you've really done is say okay well I can provide a defeater of the argument by simply saying I don't care about the argument um, as long as I just assume that the universe is law-abiding that's enough to explain it Well, again, what we're trying to explain just is the fact that the universe is law-abiding. So presenting that kind of bootstrapping as an objection doesn't actually get around as a defeater for the argument.
0: Mm. So I'm curious, like, what kind of further objections do you kind of see to this argument? Because obviously, like, there's the more, like, popular level where the laws of logic are just – descriptive they don't aren't necessary which i I think is a little bit like a little silly but like what do you see from like more serious like people kind of trying to object to this transcendental argument um for god's existence
1: yeah i think um i think a couple a couple things will come up um the first one maybe not as serious but a uh, much more common and i think will trip up christians a lot more the the human convention or descriptive one i think trips them up a little bit um, but once you realize that we're talking about the thing itself and not how we know it, that objection kind of goes away. Um, but one of them is something like what Tom Jump does or what other does, what, what, you know, what, our, what I'm sure our mutual friend, Baxter Hunter calls penhole thinking. Um, mm-hmm. Right. So it, it's this idea of, well, <clears throat> you can't say let, let's agree that there is this kind of this, this grounding for it. But but, you know, we don't have to call it God. We can call it pantheistic naturalism. We can call it the flying spaghetti monster. Mm. Right, whatever it is, um, that will trip people up because they say, "Okay, well, then, how, like, well, how can I say that it's God if it could be this other thing?" Mm. The thing that I try to do at that point is say, "Okay, well," um, Braxton calls it penhole thinking. I call it a rose by other, any other name thinking, or or ad hoc thinking, because what actually ends up happening, whenever the flying spaghetti monster is brought up as a as an as an alternative, right, either for this one or another argument, the question is, okay why is the flying spaghetti monster, for example, a good alternative or a possible alternative to God? Right. So, so, you know, let's think about the laws of logic, right? The laws of logic are immutable, they're absolute, they're transcendent, they're universal, right? They're, they're binding on principles of thought, right? So you have this kind of, uh, you, you have this kind of explanation that can count as a possible explanation for that. And they're gonna say, well, the flying spaghetti monster. So oh, great. So so f- typically what we mean by flying, by flying is something that it is is space bound and, and moves through space. Okay, well, we don't actually mean flying. We mean this transcendental sense, and flying is spiritual. Okay. So you don't mean flying. And by spaghetti, we mean this kind of like grain-based food that we eat. And they say, okay, well, it's the kind of it's it, we we really, you know, it, it's not actually spaghetti, it's it's divine. It's what we, you know, want to make up about. Okay. So you start redefining terms and we say, okay, well, how can this now really not flying? Spaghetti monster, this whatever amorphous concept you mean, how can it ground laws of logic? Okay, well, it's personal. Okay, well, how can it make it, author- you know, how can it be authoritative for all principles of thought? Oh, well, it's omnirational. Okay. Well, how, how can it, how can it make them, uh, you know, you know, uh, how can it make it so it, it, you know, the laws of logic are binding on all of the cosmos, whether you have multiverse, single verse, whatever it is. Oh, well, you know, this being is, is omnipotent and transcendent. And at and, and a certain point you get to, okay, in order to make the flying spaghetti monster an alternative, what you have to do is make all these ad hoc adjustments to make it qualitatively identical to what we mean by God. Hmm. So really all that they're saying is that the flying spaghetti is a monster is an alternative um, by being an identical concept. Um, So, so at the end of the day, it ends up just being a rose by any other name. It's not actually a defeater, right? So that's a really common one. It it's harder and it trips people up because it takes quite a bit of spade work to show why it's not a good objection.
0: Hmm.
1: The one, sorry, go ahead.
0: No, 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 you're good. Keep going.
1: I was gonna say the, the, the objection that, um, or the view that probably is um, a, along with the human convention is probably um, advocated by, by more, of, uh, you know, atheistic philosophers um, is going to be something like what Thomas Nagel is going to come up with, um, which is a, which is a kind of platonic understanding of these things. Uh, so they're going to say, uh, you know, well uh, it, it just is the case that there are these, these uh, these abstract objects, uh, you know, they'll do this with objective morality. Um, but, but, uh, you know, Thomas Nagel in his book Mind and Cosmos is going to do the similar things with rationality and laws of logic, and it's going to be okay. There, there just, there just is this abstract object that is the law of non-contradiction, mm-hmm. such that there is no possible world that could exist um, that wouldn't abide by this by this law, right? It's just, it's just this necessary abstract object that exists. Um, so we don't have to worry about, you know, is there a possible world where contradictions can be true, right? Well, that's just not a thing that could possibly exist. Um, the answer for that one is actually again, very similar when, when, uh, when that type of grounding comes up for the moral argument, Mm -hmm. which is just, I don't know what you mean at that point. Um, I don't know what, what it means to say the law of non-contradiction exists, Full stop. In kind of this platonic realm, mm. let alone exists in a way that is um, that is authoritative or impinges on the actual world, right? So, so uh, you know, let let's say you have this realm of abstract objects. Well, why is it the case that the universe has to abide by this same realm, right? Because abstract objects are causally effete; they have no they have no uh, they have no material impact um, on, on, uh, on on any type of natural world. Um, so that same type of objection, and this is why I, I draw the parallel to the moral argument, that same objection where, where William and Craig says to the people who try to, to, to come with a platonic view, just of, I don't even know what you mean when you say that it, to me, it's just, it's just opaque. It's just an incoherent a category. I, someone would have to do a lot more spade work to show what that even means to say that these transcendental facts just are these necessarily existing abstract objects? Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's kind of how it goes. So at the end of the day, when you go through these different categories of grounding, they all fall away. We do know what it means. We have we have you know concrete category you know categorical concepts when we're talking about God. We do know what it means to say a mind can be logical. So we can say that the laws of logic just reflect the mind of God, how God thinks. Um, you know, we 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 can kind of piece the puzzle together that way, and so I have not only reason to think that that's the case, but kind of all of these alternatives just don't make sense at the end of the day, which adds warrant to my belief that this one category is a good explanation. Um, mm-hmm. And so far, there you know I haven't really heard any defeaters from it, um, or, or or for this type of argument that I find uh, convincing that. That that fall outside of of this realm. So it you know the atheist might say okay well that doesn't kind of deductively get you to it has to be God, and I'm just gonna say okay well I mean I, I mean I can go, you know I can I can go for what's most plausible. It seems most most plausible, most probable that that's the case. I could do it. I could do an abductive. Version of this argument where it just it just is the best explanation for these transcendental facts that God exists and there's no there's there's no stronger alternative Um, and so I have warrant to believe that this is the case until I'm provided some defeater for it so Mm. uh, that's that's kind of uh, in a (laughs) 25 minute nutshell uh, what that argument (laughs) yeah
0: no that's great Um, one thing I'd love to go through. and I'm sorry, I lost my words there for a second. Um, at this point is we will go to a little bit of Q and a in about 15 minutes. If there's questions. I saw one thing already, but if there's questions or super chats, things like that, we'll get to that in a few minutes. Um, but from like your view, Tyler, would you say that the laws of logic are or like these transcendental facts? Would you say that they're necessary and they're like
1: grounded in God's nature? Is that kind of like your view? Uh, it depends on what you're asking. So for example, um, mm-hmm. uh, I think God grounds something like, so, so I brought up the one of the many, right. Um, mm-hmm. Here I break from presuppositionalists because I don't actually ground our epistemology in God's revelation in the scripture, right. So here this is going to be a, a somewhat of a break from from my, you know my fellow presuppositionalists. So I'm not sure you get something like Yahweh as the necessary um, kind of epistemologically necessary grounding of why we can reason. I'm not sure uh, I, I understand quite how some presuppositionalists try to connect that dot those dots. However, um, I do think that for an explanation to be able to ground something like a transcendental fact of the one and the many, um, it itself uh, is one of the many, right? So a multi-personal being like God, like a Trinitarian concept um, would be a candidate to ground um, uh, this concept, the of one, one of the many. And as far as I know, you know, Christian Trinitarianism uh, is, is really the only game on the block when you're talking about, uh, you know, multi-personal uh, agency when you're talking about uh, divine concepts, um, so you know I I, I think that um, uh, some of them are are necessary. They're necessary for the existence of rationality. Some of them are necessary in that they are statements about God's own nature. So, for example, the laws of logic I think are necessary. I think they necessarily exist. But I think when we're talking about the laws of logic, we just are describing um, the, the structure of the mind of God, right? So, um, so it just is the case, um, that the mind of God, uh, has this, has this law of non-contradiction necessarily such that it it, it exists and cannot not exist. Um, but I don't think that they are, um, kind of these, again, um, these, these necessary abstract objects that exist apart from the mind of God.
0: Mm. Right. So I think we've kind of like addressed this idea beforehand, but I do want to um, cover like kind of like what I think Graham Oppie's kind of response would be to this because I've um, just been listening to him lately and such. And, you know, he'll talk about um, like what is necessary. Um, as a theist, we would say maybe some things like these transcendental facts, maybe some of them are necessary, not all of them. Um, and on his view, he could say, "Well, well, why couldn't I just say that they're necessary too? And I'm not. Having this additional entity, which would be God, um, so it seems like the theist would kind of have like extra stuff in their uh, kind of like worldview hypothesis that doesn't need to be there. Um, so how do you yeah. kind of respond to, like that kind of cr- criticism of this argument?
1: Yeah, so that that's I mean that's the simplicity objection, right? So the yeah. the the objection, uh, you know, uh, Ben Ben Walkin gives this objection, um Gramofi, as you mentioned, gives this objection. Some others give this objection, the idea is, as you've said, it's well. You know, we, we have one less explanation, right? Your, your, your worldview has more furniture in the bedroom, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, the answer that I give to that is just, um, I just call foul. I, I just simply don't agree with them um, that that's the case because the way, so the way that they get around that explanation, right? So I'm going to say, okay, God is the explanation. He is, he is the ontological foundation for these transcendental facts of reality. Right, and they're going to say, "Oh, see, well, you have God to explain it. We don't need God to explain it." But then, when you actually ask them to ground it, they don't ground it, right? So now we're back. Th- a lot of times, someone like Graham Oppy and others, they're going to say, "Okay, well, we we just suppose them as necessary facts, right?" They're they're just in order for us to do epistemology. That just has to be the case. We're not worried about the why question or the grounding question. So I'm just going to say, okay. If you do that, what you're actually doing is saying our our grounding category is empty because we don't have a ground. Because I'm not trying to ground it, Hmm. right? But the theist is trying to ground it, right? So of course we have something in our grounding category because we're actually trying to provide a grounding explanation for it. When someone like Moppy doesn't do it, I'm just say, okay, well now you're just appealing to brute fact without explanation. If the instant you try to actually give an explanation for the laws of logic, you would need to supply something in that grounding objection. And at that point on naturalism, I think what you would find is that they would have, you know, lots of X. Right. So so for Mm -hmm. for for us. Right. We have um, we have God. Right. God explains transcendental facts of reality, like laws of logic, one of the many, um, uh, you know, an orderly universe, why there's, uh, why there's rational agency, right? You have all of these, you know, dozen transcendental facts that God grounds all 12 of, you know, all dozen of those. God also now grounds, uh, uh, right? He has, he has high explanatory scope. He grounds objective moral values. He grounds fine tuning. He, right. So you have, we actually have one explanation that grounds dozens of features of reality. The naturalist, once they start getting into the explanatory game, which is the same level that we're playing on, they're going to have to multiply explanations. They're going to have different ones for all of these. So it's just comparing apples to oranges, I think, when the atheist says, oh, well, you have more explanatory features in your worldview, and so ours is simpler. And I'm just saying, okay, well, it just looks like yours is simpler because we're talking about different levels of explanation. The instant you actually try to explain it, you're gonna, you're gonna have you know manifold more explanations than we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I just I don't find that objection convincing
0: yeah it's one thing i've been thinking about recently especially like um thinking about like the argument from conscious consciousness more like if you're gonna um a lot of people are going away from physicalism and you have like a lot of atheists will maybe be like panpsychists or something like that and it's like you could have this kind of like idea where just mental facts are just kind of not mental, but just meant the mental is just grounded into the physical as like this brute fact but you know it seems like the theist would have a simpler explanation with there just being a mental um being at the fundamental nature of reality and when you get into all these other arguments i think that helps a lot so one Question I have for you is kind of like where does this leave us? Like, um, you talk about like kind of being precept, but then not being precept, um, and you wouldn't like take it all the way to like this proves that the Christian God exists, but like with this kind of argument, where do you think this kind of um leaves us when it's all considered?
1: Um, it's a very good question. I think it leads us um in a stronger place as far as it comes to something like epistemic warrant for our Christian worldview. Um, it's it's um. It seems to me the case, and th- again, this is, you know, the, one of the reasons why I'm not a presuppositionalist when it comes to methodology is because I'm not one of those people that's going to be like going around and constantly repeating, you know, by what standard and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, telling telling atheists um, that I'm not going to try to reason or engage with them because, you know, they, they're blas- every time they try to reason, they're blaspheming God. And I'm going to say, okay, well, <laughs> they're going to do it anyways, so we might as well, you know, highlight the truth of, uh, of Christian revelation uh, that mm-hmm. God has shown us. Um, I think one of, the, one of the areas that it leaves us, again, is, is on a much stronger epistemic footing. Um, it, it leaves us on the understanding that we can engage um, with, with the unbeliever, we can engage with the atheist um, in kind of a higher order level. So, I, you know, I saw one comment that says, you know, that, that, that this is something that's actually already accounted for within classical, um, within classical theism. And I'm gonna say, well, I mean, a presuppositionalist is a classical theist, right? So it's, it's, it's not that we're competing systems. A presuppositionalist is just gonna say, okay, well, there's classical theism, let's pull back the curtain and talk about the things that are grounding classical theism on kind of a worldview level and say, okay, in order to do classical theism, we talk about arguments from God, what has to be the case for us to even talk about arguments from God? Well, you have to have these transcendental facts of reality. Well, in order for us to have these transcendental facts of reality, guess what? God already has to exist. So, for you to even, for us to even engage and talk about the kalâm or the contingency argument or any of these kind of other arguments, or to talk about evidences under an evidentialist system, right? Because mm-hmm. you know, presuppositionalists aren't against evidence. By the way, it's just <laughs> it's just that we think evidences make sense because God is the necessary precondition for us to understand evidences. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, it, it, it allows us to kind of push our, our confidence back one more step behind that curtain that we open on classical theism and say, not only is, let's say, the contingency argument good. I think the modal ontolog- ontological argument is probably one of the least helpful, but probably the most sound argument of, of classical theism.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But what presuppositionalism does is say, okay, we don't just kind of have to sit at this level of we think these arguments are good arguments, it lets us go one more level and say, we have the confidence to say that not only are these arguments good arguments, but the, the mere fact that we can even talk about these arguments and reason about these arguments adds to our confidence uh, that God is good. God is personal. God is, is, uh, has set up an orderly universe. God is involved in us. We are personal agents to mirror and reflect God and live in his creation uh, you know, to, to follow the Westminster Confession, uh, to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Um, so that, that I, I think it really moves um, uh, you know, it can it can have a powerful impact on the unbeliever that you're arguing with. But I think it puts us on much stronger footing where in order for the atheist to to actually undermine kind of our confidence in in, uh, in, in our Christian uh, religion and Christian faith, they actually now need to not just provide a defeater for these arguments, they now need to provide. Uh, a lot, you know, a a grounding alternative for these things where we can even talk about these things within their own worldview. Um, Mm -hmm. And so far, you know, the the attempts to do so, I just think have been um, poor (laughs) to say the least. Fair. Um,
0: let's go to a little bit of Q&A here and we'll wrap things up here. Um, the first thing we have is a super chat from, um, John. So thank you so much for supporting your super chat. He says if abstract objects are necessary, why do they need an explanation outside of themselves? Isn't God's necessity a sufficient explanation
1: for his existence? Right. Um, okay. So very, very good question. So, um, there, there's a distinction between, um, a brute fact and a necessary fact that's commonly made, not that John is making this, but just to tee it up because some other people might be reading it this way. Um, A brute fact is something that exists or is true without explanation. It just is the case and to hell with explanation, right? Um, I find arguments for brute facts um, just abysmally poor and rather lazy, right? Something exists and there's an explanation for its existence. As John points out, God exists necessarily, and something like the contingency argument is an argument that God's own necessity is an explanation for his existence, right? Mm -hmm. And so John is going to push the other side and say, okay, well, if we're saying that something like a necessary fact, like transcendental facts, he put abstract objects, again, it's not quite an argument from abstract objects, but an argument from transcendental facts um, or or laws of logic or something like that, uh, if those are necessary facts, um, why can't their own necessity explain it? The answer to that is is simply that um, when we think about the types of things they are they might exist necessarily in the sense that they cannot fail to exist but it doesn't mean that they necessarily exist independently right so when we talk about the laws of logic we are talking about something like the lo- the laws or principles of true thought well um th- unless you want to go platonic which again i don't know what that means I don't know what it means to say that the laws of logic exist necessarily kind of in abstracta, right? I know what it means to say that the laws of logic exist as a description of the mind of God. And therefore we can say they exist necessarily because God exists necessarily. But I don't think we can kind of appeal to the thing of in itself uh, as the grounds for its own being, even though it might necessarily exist right um so you know a good example we could you know we can think of um it just is the case that any possible world that god could create um uh north will always you know uh uh, you know north will always be north of south um that just is tautologically true but it's not the case that north and south necessarily exist right so um so you know you can talk about these kind of to say it sloppily you can kind of talk about these contingent necessities um, these necessities that don't exist in and of themselves for their truth makers. Right. So I, I think when we're talking about something like laws of logic, um, or the one and the many they're grounded in something, I, even though they're necessary.
0: Yeah, that's great. Um, another question here we have is from BDS, which says, um, sorry if this was already covered, but are there papers defending this argument? or so are there like papers, books that you could kind of, um, point people towards to kind of look at like defending the transcendental argument?
1: There, there are. Um, if you go to, um, uh, I, I actually, I can't remember the name of the paper, but uh, James Anderson, um, he's a philosopher at, uh, at RTS, um, where I'm working on my master's, actually. He's, he's, a, he's a really uh, brilliant uh, Christian philosopher. Uh, he actually has done a couple papers in dealing with um, defending... Um, uh, laws of logic, uh, or or something like a transcendental argument from laws of logic. And he goes through some of these objections and how to overcome kind of the the human convention objection, how to overcome some of these platonic objections. And so he does go through and defend them. I'm sorry, I don't have the paper right off the top of my head. Uh, But James Anderson uh, is going to be a good example of a philosopher doing that.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um another question here um from John Buck which says is Tyler a coherentist or a foundationalist with regards to epistemology or other you know, stuff? Uh, I
1: so I am an unhappy um neitherist. Uh so I so, uh, it's I largely I don't know if it's my personality, I tend to be moderate, not in the sense of like um you know, politically moderate or something, but I tend to find that there is truth in lots of views and they're kind of all getting at things. Um, and so I just think that it is the, <laughs> that it just is the case, um, that, that, that coherentism and foundationalism are probably both true in significant ways. Um, so I, I'm not entirely comfortable saying I'm one, uh, or, or the other, um, if that makes any sense fair enough you know um
0: craig creed says um what's the what is the conflict between evidentialists and precepts is there not really a conflict because apparently you're like a precept but you're also flirting with all these other apologetic yeah. methodologies so like what's the difference between evidentialists and precept just a helpful clarification
1: yeah absolutely good question i think the the co- I, there is a conflict but i think it's largely a a um on some levels a theological concept conflict in dealing with um uh, how much God's revelation is actually foundational for our epistemology, but I think where it kind of rears its head is in dealing with methodology, um, because the you know a classicalist is going to do kind of uh, you know uh, they're going to want to treat the the unbeliever as if they are maybe not tabula rasa but as if they are kind of this independent thinker. Um, engaging with the argument, right? So they're gonna think that this person can can reason independently of God. The presuppositionalist like myself is gonna come along and say, no, 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 the only reason they can, the only reason they can reason, the only reason they can can rationally engage with these arguments just is because they are made in the image of God uh, and that they are rational agents because they are made in the image of God. And so we're gonna have that kind of theological um, difference. Methodologically, a lot of presuppositionalists will come along, and they will want that to be grounded, or they'll want that um, that that epistemology to then be further grounded, or primarily grounded in something like God's revelation of Himself in Scripture. Um, and I just don't find those. I just don't find that maneuver very convincing, um, and that's why methodologically, I'm not very presuppositionalist. But you have to remember, a presuppositionalist. It's a common misunderstanding to think that they're against. Classical arguments, or they're against evidence, right? I mean, Van Til wrote an entire book called "On Christian Evidences," where he defends the use <laughs> of of Christian evidences. Again, it's just it's just Christian evidences are like a gem that's already set in the fitting of uh, a Christian worldview, such that evidences only make sense because we can reason about things, because we're made in the image of God, because God exists, um, mm-hmm. and so it's not that we're opposed to Christian evidences or we're opposed to classical arguments. It's just not methodologically the starting place for us. Right. Um,
0: Susan J- Lambo-Slamar and just posted a link to the paper that I think Tyler was talking about yeah. earlier. Um, but one question I have for you kind of to wrap things up here is you talk about um, using this argument as like, just like um, a rational argument for God's existence and like um, looking at like reason, but you're also like reformed. Um, so you kind of have that where I, I think if, I were to understand your view, you kind of say that no one really comes to God purely like from their own will, but it comes from um, being part of the elect and God's chosen uh, things like that. So like, how do you like look at the two of like um, like the idea of like reason and argumentation, but then also like this idea that you have in reformed theology about like how we're saved.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, that's a really big question. Uh, yeah, if you could sum that up in a few minutes, because that's a giant thing I just threw on you. Oh yeah, yeah, that's a really, that's a really, really big question. I, I mean, firstly, I, I would, I would clear there and say, okay, well, I mean, reformed, uh, you know, theologians, we don't deny free will. Uh, mm-hmm. We deny libertarian free will. Um, yeah, and, and so and, you know. And, but we do follow, you know, we 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 take a certain view of what Paul is saying in something like First Corinthians two, and it says, well, the natural man uh, cannot appraise or even accept the things of uh, of God, um, or the things that are of the Spirit, right? What w- which the gospel is paradigmatically the prime uh, truth that is a spiritual truth, um, and so yeah, yes, it is the case that we think in order for someone to believe, um, God regenerates them and brings them to faith and works faith in them such that we are we believe and are saved. Um, however. Um, that doesn't mean that God is not working providentially and through the means of argumentation, right? So at the very, at the top of the show, I mentioned about uh, how how I came out of uh, and I converted largely because of a philosophical class that I had. Um, so it was actually my atheistic professor going through these arguments for the existence of God, hitting on some of the reasons why naturalism, he, you know, he was a a good negalian, if you could say that as someone who kind of follows Nagel, um, and basically saying, look, our, you know, naturalism doesn't really account for these things very well. And yeah, theism can do it, but I just don't want that to be the case or, you know, rationally don't want that, not necessarily emotionally in that sense. Um, and and that you know struck a chord with me um, and started to work, and that's something that God used um, kind of providentially uh, to bring me to faith. When we talk about kind of salvation and soteriology, um, we're just talking about a different kind of explanation, right? So it absolutely is the case that the Spirit of God um, has to move among um, among someone um, uh, to to for for them to be saved, right? But the the you know the presuppositionalists and, and 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 you know the reform not I mean again, not all reformed people are presuppositionalists. Um, we just are gonna say that one of the means by which God uses to bring some people to himself may just in fact be arguments and, and evidence and and so on and so forth.
0: Hmm. Well, fair enough. And thank you um for and just a few minutes going through that really big and deep question. Um but thank you so much for your time Tyler. Is there any kind of like last thoughts things you didn't get to say that you want to say and then feel free to like share like how people can follow you and your work.
1: Um not really anything that I did that I didn't say or or uh um didn't get brought up. So um I I think if it, if people want to read or or hear more about this, uh my blog freethinkerpodcast.blogspot.com is one way to find stuff. I um, mean, go watch my debate. Uh, I, you know, I largely went through this argument or this type of um, kind of quasi presuppositional method when uh, when debating people like uh, Aaron Raw, Matt Dillahunty, Tom Jump and some others. Um, but, you, you, you know, you can you can see it uh, through through a lot of uh, through a lot of you know apologists who are now coming out um, at, with YouTube channels and stuff kind of championing presuppositional apologetics. So.
0: Yeah, Eli Ayal is a great presuppositionalist yeah. that um I think yeah. everyone likes, even if you're not presupp, I, I think yeah. it's hard to not like you. But thank you so much, Tyler, for your time. I'd encourage everyone to follow um FreeThinker Ministry. I keep saying you're Tim Stratton. You're definitely not <laughs> Tim Stratton. Um the Free Thinker Podcast. Um you can follow there's a link down below to follow Tyler on Twitter, all sorts of great stuff. And if you're new to Here in Apologetics, I always I encourage you subscribe. You can leave a like on your way out, that means a lot. And if you enjoy the show, you can support us on patreon.com slash adhere apologetics. Right now we're about eighty three percent funded. So I appreciate everyone's support through that. And you can support for as little as a few dollars a month. So I appreciate that. But Tyler, thank you so much again for your time. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And thank you everyone for tuning in. Craig, John, Bach, Sin, everyone else. Have a good one. God bless.